There are already inflation riots around the world, and I think we have a big, big food problem that's about to come. Let's go take a look. I'm going to tell you all about it. Hello, hello, everyone. Dr. Chris Martinson here, and we are back with another episode. This is episode 56. We are talking about the inflation that I've been talking about for quite a while, and as well now food, food security, food issues, food inflation. Hey, uh, all of this could actually lead to uh, very big problems and predicaments. And this is a little bit due to the war in Ukraine, but not entirely. Uh, that just really put some afterburners on a trend that had already been in play prior to the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. So, yeah. Um, episode 56, the inflation riots have begun. Famine's possible by the end of 2022. What am I talking about? That sounds like crazy talk, I know. But, hey, it's already sort of started to happen here. We see that in um, Peru, just recently, this is from April 5th, that's today is in terms of recording this, Peru just imposed curfew in Lima is violent. Inflation protests spread fires, rocks were thrown, the police had to be brought out with all their hardware on. It says down here, let me get my drawn tool out so we can have this conversation together. Um, yeah, so it says, uh, Purdue's president declared a curfew in the capital Lima on Tuesday to stem violent protests against inflation that have intensified in recent days, leading to clashes with police, temporary, temporary food shortages, and supply chain disruptions. Now, end quote. All of these are actually hallmarks of what you see in a rising inflationary environment. Inflation sounds like rising prices. That's not inflation. That is a symptom of inflation. That's like saying um, fever is, a, is the thing. No, it's the flu. It's the underlying flu that's causing the fever. The fever is a symptom that shows that your immune system is attempting to fight something off. Inflation is the fever. What does it tell us? It tells us there's too much of something in the body economic over here. What is that? That would be money. That would be the money that your government prints, that the central banks have printed, that the two of them in cahoots, the governments and the central banks, have printed because inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. If they were not overprinting, we would not be experiencing as much inflation as we are. If we hadn't made really bad decisions around how to do lockdowns and interrupting the supply chain and basically shutting the entire world down over COVID, which was unnecessary... Because we did that, we now have all kinds of supply chain disruptions that are baked in the cake or are pigs in the python. They're very, very hard to deal with because supplier A doesn't make raw materials because their workers are all home with COVID or because of you know shutdowns or curfews or whatever happened. And because we don't have raw input A, we can't get intermediate goods C, D, B, G, Q, and 125. Because we don't have those in insufficient supply, you can't get all the finished goods on the far end. That's how it works. And it's very hard for each one of those independent parties to make up their, uh, the, any of those deficits or shortfalls that exist in the supply chain. So some of this is because of supply chain issues. A lot of it, though, is because we printed too much money. Lots of money. If you've been watching this show for a while, you've seen the hockey stick charts of monetary printing that are extraordinary. All right. Um, by the way, uh, the statement is there are only nine meals between mankind and anarchy. And this is a statement that comes to us. Let me move this out a tiny bit so it's not cut off. Whoa, there it is. Alfred Henry Lewis in 1906 said that. Um, I just chose a nice picture. It looked like a <laughs> pretty much a 
near anarchy situation going on there over some bread. The the quip here is about the idea that, um, listen, you know, if you run out of gasoline, you can run, limp along for a good long time around that. If, if you run out of um, oil, you can make do for quite a while. If you run out of almost anything, you can make do for a while. But food... Nine meals, three days. As long once people get about three days hungry, anarchy breaks out, and so that's just how it is. Now, in part two of this at peak prosperity, I'm going to be talking about some framing. Some framing. This is what I do in the world: is I find lots of data, but data by itself is no good. You need a frame to hang it in or on. And a framing in this is not a picture frame. It's not a literal picture frame, and it's not we're framing somebody for a crime or uh, framing anything like that. It's an idea or a concept. Framing idea is an idea or a concept that helps us to better understand another set of facts or concepts. So that's what I like to do. I like to make sense of the world, and to do that requires us to have really good and appropriate frames. So I will be talking about this in part two. The framing I'm going to be talking about is what I call from the outside in. It's a really important framing concept. I get asked a lot, uh, Chris, what are you watching to see when you think the next round of trouble is going to come from, or where do you think the next emerging positive trend is going to come from? You always have to watch the outsides. That's why when COVID was breaking, I was watching the outsides of this, not the CDC, which is the center, not the FDA, which is the center, not the NIH, but I was watching what the doctors, the really good doctors who are out there who were at the front lines of treating patients, what they were up to, what they were discovering, because that's where we were going to discover the signals first. Similarly, when we want to know when the food riots are about to get worse or when the markets are going to break or something like that, you want to watch it the outside in. So in part two of this, I'm going to talk to people about that and um, help them understand that framing. This part two is um, about where the crises will emerge. If you want to uh, follow over on that. Just click the link. It's just going to pop over my head here for just a second, maybe my face, but um, that's how you would come there. And by the way, uh, we do have a whole bunch of new packages over at, at Peak Prosperity. Uh, I get to do what I do. I have a wonderful team supporting me. Hey, we're running a business. We have lights to keep on. So we have all new packages there, which are as low as seven fifty a month. It's all it takes to get some really cool framing. And by the way, this is um, a... Uh, just unsolicited reader feedback from Peak Prosperity from the only DWK writing three days ago. Amazing. I've only I've been listening to you for over 10 years now. This this part two behind the paywall, that was the last one, is awesome. I wish you'd done it sooner. I thought your information on YouTube was amazing and on point, but it pales in comparison to what you do here. Thank you for all you've done for me and my family. We started making preparations for the future because of your work. We are not where we'd like to be due to financial constraints laid on us by the sick care system. But we're far ahead of every anyone else I know. Your information led us to change where we live, what we drive, what we eat, the company we keep, and overall has elevated the quality of life. End quote. Hey, that's why I do what I do. I love getting feedback like that, but I really do put everything I've got into giving quality information not just information, but information that's actionable. So that's why this is music to my ears, because I want people to hear what I have to say, but take whatever actions make sense to them off of that. All right, self-pitch is over. And by the way, uh, today's program is sponsored by Secure, so we're also happy to have sponsors. All of this helps keep the lights on, keep the things rolling along. All right, hey, you remember the Arab Spring? That was 2011. It kicked off in December 2010. 
it really kicked off in Tunisia with with this uh, fruit vendor who set themselves on fire, and somehow that was the spark. And then one thing led to another, and it, it went all across the Middle East, North Africa, uh, states there, and was known as the Arab Spring. But there was a lot of unhappiness. So sure, there was corruption to be unhappy about. Sure, there was you know the usual things not working quite like you would want them to. But the real reason this kicked off was the absolute inflation in food prices. People in this region would have up to 40% of their income going into just basic food to get by. Many of them are already at the edge of food insecurity on a daily basis. So when the price of that food doubled, in essence, for the basic loaf of wheat that might be their sustenance, it kicked off this social unrest. In fact, you know, you're, if you're only uh, nine meals away from anarchy, you're really only about 10 substandard meals away or, or 20 substandard meals away from unrest. So we can plot this out. I can tell you it's a virtual guarantee that when, not if, but when, food prices continue to spike, as they will right now for a variety of inflationary as well as structural reasons. Because that's happening, we're going to see more of this Arab Spring type of behavior happening. That's a prediction. We've seen it all throughout history. This is a chart of food prices in livres. Um, uh so we're looking at the overall cost here of food in France, 1730, 1735 on out, 1785. So yeah, you see this big spike in uh, right here. So the French Revolution was 1789 to 1799. That spike in food costs right there was a contributing factor. Obviously, there was corruption. There was a disliked monarchy. There was disliked leadership. There's all kinds of reasons, but food costs, rising food prices tend to be an important factor fuel or food component to this to this story of unrest. So let's take a quick peek at this. Um, this is the chart of food prices. This is in, I believe, um, nominal terms here. So uh, nominal means not, not inflation adjusted, just looking at it. So we can see here the Arab Spring began in December of 2010. It began right about, let me get my drawing tool back, right about here. So that we can see was part of the contributing factor. Of course, there had been a price spike back here in 2008. This is when oil prices were rising smartly, hitting a high of $147 a barrel in July of 2008. That event preceded, obviously, the great financial crisis. So spikes in oil lead to spikes in food prices. Spikes in food prices lead to social unrest. Neither of those things are good for economies or markets. So um, that's where we were back then. Where are we today? Because I did cut this chart off here a little early. That cuts off just around 2020. This is where we are today. You are here. You are now at a higher food price than we saw back that tripped up the Arab Spring. Now, it's just raised and it's just kicked off, but we are seeing a pretty sustained food price spike. By the way, that's going to lead to social unrest. It always does. It's just how this works. By the way, these food prices today are even higher than 2010 in real terms. You just heard me use two terms, real and nominal. Nominal means in present-day dollars. You just compare dollars to dollars. So something costs $10 in those terms, in nominal terms back in 2010. It costs $10 today. Obviously, it's a little more expensive back then because a $10 bill was worth more way back then. Uh, so real terms adjust for those things in a real it's a real comparison. So inflation is already taken into account. That's what they're doing in this chart from the FAO. And here we look at real food prices in yellow and nominal in orange down here. 
And we can see that as of today, these real food prices can only be compared to those that we saw in real terms back in the early 70s. Cereals up 18.7% year over year. Dairy up 24.8% year over year. And cooking oils up 42% year over year. That's where a lot of the calories for people all over the world who live on a more subsistence basis, they come from cereals and comes from those cooking oils. So this is, uh, we're getting into pretty uh, bad territory here, at least as far as food prices are concerned. Now we have to take another tour here. Here's why food prices are going to continue to get more expensive as we go forward. And it begins with something I'm sure you've been hearing about, which is fertilizers. Plain old boring fertilizers. If you went down to the store, you might find a bag of all-purpose fertilizer. It would be called 10-10-10. What does that mean? Well, I put the little uh, letters down there. The first 10 is nitrogen. The second 10 is the P. That's phosphorus. The third 10, confusingly, is the K, which is for potassium. NPK, That's those, those are the three big components of fertilizer, the main ones. There's other things you might need, too. Boron, sulfur, sometimes copper, selenium, depending. But these are the big three. If you can, if you just give plants these big three, generally speaking, they're going to do a lot better than if you don't give them. So let's start. Nitrogen. I really don't have any words for what's happening to the nitrogen supplies. You've been hearing about it. Nitrogen fertilizer is typically ammonia. Ammonia is made through the Haber-Bosch process, which takes atmospheric nitrogen, which is about... Mm, close to close to four-fifths of the atmosphere that you breathe is just nitrogen. It's an inert gas, triple-bonded nitrogens. Those have to be busted apart, very energy expensive, and you have to put hydrogen on there to create ammonia. What do we do that with? Where do we get the energy and the hydrogen? From natural gas. So, as natural gas is the energy crisis ripples through Europe, ripples through the United States, other countries, we find that the the cost of ammonia fertilizer is a derivative of the energy cost. Look at this spiking. It was down around 200 euros per ton, and now it's at 1450. That is an extraordinary increase. And so guess what? A lot of farmers aren't going to be able to put nitrogen, aren't going to be able to afford it, won't even be able to get it to put on their fields. I'll show you how important that is in just a minute. So what about that second P, which is phosphorus? Here on the periodic table, we can see here the N and the P are circled over here. I've given you the K. The K is uh, the potassium. Um, you know, it's complex reasons why it's a K, but it is. Uh, and so that is the potash in this story. Um, so at any rate, when we're saying NPK, we're talking basic elements, but they're in an, an available form that plants can take up. It's not nitrogen per se, but it's, it's an ammonia base. Plants love that stuff. Uh, it's not... Um, just phosphorus. It's phosphorus in a bioavailable form, typically a phosphate. And potassium, potassium um, comes in typically as a salt as well, um, so that it's uh, potash is an available form. Now let's go here. This is really unsustainable. Let's talk about that second letter, the P, the phosphate. This is an article to us. It comes to us from 2019, and scientists. The headline reads: Scientists work to solve phosphate shortage, the dwindling resource required to grow food. Quote, phosphate is obtained through rock mining. That's it. Crush up rocks and, and get the phosphate out. 70% of the world's phosphate reserves are located in North Africa. China, Russia, South Africa, and the United States all have limited quantities of the mineral rock. 
Continuing, quote, scientists have reported that global phosphate production would peak around 2030. At the same time, the global population will reach 8.5 billion people. Several reports have also warned that the global reserve would be depleted, depleted within the next 50 to 100 years. Current agricultural practice involves the use of a high amount of phosphate fertilizer in order to achieve optimal plant growth. End quote. This is completely unsustainable. This is what the crash course is about. This is what my life's work has been about for the past 15 years now, is alerting people to this basic stuff. This is a fact. And by the way, if the facts alarm you, problem isn't with the facts. It's just a fact that the way we currently farm, and this is fixable, but not the way we currently farm. The way we currently farm, somewhere in Morocco, which has most of those reserves, they're talking about a phosphate, rock is mined. It's crushed up, it's put into bags, or it's loaded onto a bulk carrier, it's sailed across the ocean, comes here to the United States, say, lands on a field in Iowa somehow, it gets put into corn, gets taken up by the corn, the corn gets bagged and processed. It goes out, becomes cornmeal, the cornmeal becomes a tortilla chip. The tortilla chip is consumed in New York City. Somebody in New York City takes a, takes a leak or uh, goes to the bathroom and flushes that phosphate out into the ocean. It is a one-way arrow from the source back out to the ocean again. Never to be seen again, by the way. We treat what we treat as a waste in that stream process is not waste. It's incredibly vital. If we were being at all intelligent, you know what we would do? We wouldn't be sending $14 billion today to the Ukraine to do some more fighting and blowing stuff up. The world doesn't need any more wars. Wars are destructive. They blow stuff up. Prediction. We're going to blow stuff up. And it's going to stay blown up at some point in the future because it takes energy to rebuild. Whole story there. We don't have the energy to rebuild uh, that we had in the past. So at any rate, what's going to happen uh, in this story, that should, should be happening in this story, I should say, is we really ought to be taking those billions of dollars that are, we're just being frittered about in the budget right now. And we should be putting them into preserving our soils and enhancing our soils. There ought to be permaculture programs that are adequately funded, so richly adequately funded that our best and our brightest are fighting to get in there. Our most energetic and spirited youngsters who are just figuring out that they want to really do good and lasting good in this world, well, we would be funding that as a nation. We aren't funding that at all. It's not not at the government level. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a tragedy. But at any rate, this is stupid. This is grade A dumb. This is grade A unsustainable. To take a finite, non-renewable, natural resource, because it's an element on the table of periodic things, right? If we take that and we just mine it and flush it into the ocean with a few complicated steps in between, that's really dumb. Um, so that's dumb. So at any rate, how important is it? Well, here we can see these are rice plants. Here they're growing on this side without phosphorus, and here they are with phosphorus. I hope you can see that Phosphorus has an important sort of an input component to yields. Same thing, no nitrogen with nitrogen. You see that healthy, thick, rich green growth over there with nitrogen. Together, nitrogen and phosphorus, essential. So is phosphate. Um, sorry, uh, so is uh, potassium or the potash. All three of those. NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. So what is potassium? Really cool story about that. Uh, you should, if you want, check out this right here. This is a YouTube by um, the channel Veritasium. It's fantastic. The whole channel's fantastic, but this episode I loved. And it's all about potassium and potash. Potash is what we call potassium. It's actually, that is literally two words, pot 
Ash. For all of you people who think uh, if you ever need to make potash, you can make it yourself. All you got to do is come up with ashes from a wood fire. You soak those for a little while. You strain them. You have this sort of slippery brownish yellowish liquid that you then put in a pot and you boil down or you evaporate it in the sun. And what's left, the ash at the bottom, is potash. It's rich in a few things, but it's very, very rich in potassium. So potash is potassium in this story. So you can make your own at home. It's much harder to make nitrogen at home, although you can plant nitrogen-fixing plants. Those are your legumes, clovers, vetch, peas, things like that, alfalfa. Phosphorus is a lot harder to come by. A lot of phosphorus in your urine. So if you ever want to think about storing your urine and putting that onto your compost piles, works great. Check with your local laws first, I suppose I should say. When it comes to um, potash, it turns out little wrinkle in this story is that Russia and Belarus are not just sort of major potash exporters. They're number two and three in this story. Canada, number one by far, equaling about numbers two and three put together. But after that, it drops off quickly. Germany, number four at just 3,000. So if you looked at, at the, the rankings, Belarus and Russia, who are both now under increasing sanctions for the war in Ukraine, which, by the way, seems to be getting worse, not better from a diplomatic standpoint. We've seen diplomats kicked out of well, let's see. Most of Europe is talking about it. Germany's just kicked some Russian diplomats out. It's gathering steam right now. We're, we're, we're still, we haven't, we haven't gotten to the better part of this story yet. At any rate, if Russia and Belarus are cut off from the international community and they don't export their potash, no K in this story. We're wicked short on the N. We're wicked short on the P right now because forget about even that, that we're going to, you know, run out of the P at some point, the, the phosphorus at some later stage we're actually just short on it on international supplies right now um and uh so just as an indication of how things are headed in the wrong direction for russia and belarus uh look at this not only has airbnb left russia and belarus but it's now banned russian and belarusian nationals from using its service anywhere in the world um so you, you can just feel like tensions aren't getting any better when airbnb has decided you're on the outs you know, it's uh, not too long before everybody else does. But here's the problem. Not only do we need the energy supplies that come from Russia, but we need the potash as well. And we need the grown grains. We need all of these things. And so we, it's very, very difficult to isolate and slam and shame a given country that's as important on the resource part of the story as Russia is without creating huge difficulties. And that's what's already baked in the cake. We are going to have massive food shortages this year, which is 2022. I predict by the end of this year, well, it'll be really obvious by the third quarter, fourth quarter for sure, when the harvests come in or don't come in, that's when we find out just how bad off we are in this story. So collectively, the fertilizer cost, when you look at this as a fertilizer price index, this is across a whole variety of components of fertilizers, NPK for sure, maybe a few subcomponents like sulfur and things like that. But look at that, we're at 377 at the last reading, the prior high in 2008 was 360. This is the little bump right here where we saw the Arab Spring come in right here at 2010 and 11. So this is uh, off the charts relative to anything we've seen before. This is all new territory, all new. So we should at least have the humility to say, I haven't been here before, don't know how this is going to turn out. But I would hope that our leadership 
would have a little bit of um, grace and humility around this to say, you know, we're really unhappy with certain things in the world, but we think eating is even more primal than our feelings about being unhappy with another country. That's how I would like to see this go, because I, you know how it works, right? It's never the rich people making the decisions who end up bearing the brunt of those decisions. So here's why we have a big problem with this, and it relates to the difference between dirt and soil. Dirt is that stuff on the left. It's just an agglomeration of small particles. Soil is a living, biologically enhanced, carbon-rich environment where every handful it has as much complexity as a square mile of the rainforest. It's astonishing. If you were really small and you could slip into that soil over there on that side of the story right there, that dark, dark black stuff, you would be surrounded by life, bacteria of every imaginal conformation and shape and size. You've got nematodes in there, fungi, protozoa, one-celled, multi-celled. There's, it's just, it's a really, really rich environment. And that is in part why plants like to grow in soil. But you can grow them in dirt if you have to. You can grow stuff in the desert. You just got to provide water, N, P, and K. A lot of what we do in the United States and in other agricultural areas now is that we're growing in dirt. Here's the problem with growing in dirt. You can't fake it for a couple of years. There's no faking it. You either are putting water, N, P, and K in, or you're not. If you don't, you get those stunted little plants we saw in that example I just showed, right? All right, here's what's here's the trend in the United States. This is from a... Um, US, uh, USGS report. Let me move this up so you can see it. Of course, all of the links are always down in the show notes down below in the description down here. Check this out. This is showing the amount of nitrogen that is expressed in kilograms per square kilometer. So metric. And starting in 1950 on through 2017, this goes from back in the 1950s, the soils were rich enough and the practices were such that we didn't put a lot of N on the soils. The most we would get is into this sort of yellow, early orange, maybe up to a thousand in some of these, maybe a thousand kilos per square kilometer. But typically it was below that. So it was uh, 500 to a thousand or less everywhere. And now you can see we've come along and we're into these bright red areas, which are over is only qualified as over 6,000 kilograms of nitrogen. So um, a metric ton is 1,000. So, um, so that's six metric tons of nitrogen for every square kilometer. It's just an astonishing thing just to watch that blue mountain. So this is what you're watching here is back in the 1950s, we didn't have to use a lot of nitrogen and of because uh, we had soil back then. We're watching dirt being created for the most part. Sterile, not biologically active, low carbon or organic content, and mostly just a matrix to hold roots while you apply the life-giving minerals and nutrients to those plants as you grow them in the open air um, under the sun. But fundamentally, it's kind of like hydroponics, right? We've just got dirt, not soil. So that's the progression that we've seen there and the amount of nitrogen that we've put on. And this is the amount of phosphorus also addicted to phosphorus again starting with very very low amounts and progressing now not quite as much but as uh, nitrogen but sure quite a lot you see all of the um, bright yellowy orange getting up to uh, the 2000 to 4000 if I'm reading that right certainly 1000 to 2000 yeah I think yeah so 1000 to 2000 kilograms of phosphorus put down per 
square kilometer. So that's the trend. You can see it here in the nitrogen. You see it here in the phosphorus. Putting both of those onto a single chart, we see here that U.S. farming is indeed addicted to fertilizers. Starting back in the 50s, you see the amount of nitrogen and phosphorus were roughly balanced. As we go forward, you can see there's a clear over-reliance on nitrogen at this point in time. Lots and lots of nitrogen being put into the soil. And um, looking at, this is expressed in millions of kilograms of each. Nitrogen in blue, phosphorus in orange. Um, a thousand million kilograms is a billion kilograms. So I guess we're topping out here at like 12 billion kilograms of nitrogen put on in 2017 compared to around 2 billion kilograms of phosphorus. So that's a lot. So that's why when scientists say, you know, hey, we're going to be running out of phosphorus in X number of years, they, they look at the amount that we use globally and then they match that against reserves and say, yeah, it looks like we're, we're going to, there's only so much, right? It's a pretty easy calculation to run. Now, fertilizer is already pinching the farms out there in the world. Here's an article says um, that in the second yellow box down there, the price of fertilizers for crop development pasture for livestock and lambs quadrupled last year from around 250 pounds a ton, this is in the UK, to almost 1,000 pounds. Farmers told the Times that some fertilizer traders had temporarily closed their order books due to lack of sources while others rationed the amounts they could buy. So here's an example at the bottom of a gentleman who bought two loaded trucks at 56 tons when he needed twice as much. What happens when you put half as much fertilizer on? Well, we'll find out because half as much fertilizer would basically take us back to the 70s. So farming, going back to the 70s, at least in this example right here. Now, it's not just the fertilizer that's what's needed to grow crops all around the world, but obviously Ukraine, major source of exported wheat and corn. Russia, major export source for all sorts of grains. Belarus, surprisingly, also uh, an exporter in this regard. At any rate, we look at just what's happened with the war in Ukraine. We see that Ukraine is going to experience a major reduction in the amount of tonnage that it is going to be uh, exporting. 15 million tons of grains are pretty much off the market that were expected to be on the market. Other places are going to export more as a consequence dipping into their stockpiles. India's coming here with some wheat, United States a variety of grains, Brazil, and then to a lesser degree Argentina, but they don't make up for this particular loss, not even close yet. Um, so we're looking at a structural shortfall in the amount of grain that's available from last year and prior year's harvest to ship to make up for the shortfall of just what's missing from Ukraine's last year's harvest where that grain is not making it to market right now. Maybe it'll make it later. Um, maybe it'll be destroyed. We don't know. But uh, when we look at this, it's to me, it's no longer a question of if, but how large of a food shortage crisis it's going to be. Not if, but how big. So we see here just some random headlines in New York Times writing about the Ukraine war threatens to cause a global food crisis. It's not going to cause it. It's going to add to it because this global food crisis was already on the books before the invasion of Ukraine. But it will definitely add to it to the extent that Ukraine doesn't plant and the extent to which Ukraine can't export. President Biden went out and said food shortages are going to be real. Nice presidential statement there. CNN writing, war has brought the world to the brink of a food crisis again. Uh, it's adding to it, but it's not the cause of it, guaranteed. 
So prediction that I have here is food famine. It actually begins in the fourth quarter of 2022, ripples all through that winter of 2023. Hopefully we get these supply chain issues around fertilizers resolved. That's just for the short term. Longer term, we still need a plan B around this whole thing. How are humans going to continue to feed themselves when, not if, but when? We run low on the ability to either manufacture nitrogen from the air using natural gas because we're running low on natural gas needed for other purposes, run low on phosphorus because it's all mined out. What are we going to do then? We ought to have a plan. We, the collective we, don't have a plan. I have a plan, and hopefully you have a plan too. This is part of the backdrop for why I've been saying for a long time, all through COVID, I was like, plant a garden. Part of the reason for planting a garden is that you're going to be able to control your own food supplies, but you can also begin to close the waste stream recycling so that you don't lose your N and your P and your K, that those end up back in your garden. Know what I mean? All right. And the food riots, of course, are going to precede the famines themselves. By the time people are starving to death, uh, the, the riots tend to quiet down a bit because people don't have the energy for that that activity. So that's what I think is going to be coming through the rest of the year. So that's why I'm talking about, at least in part, I have my eye on food. I'm watching the food situation pretty carefully. I've been watching the edges, watching where the fertilizers are coming. But now I'm going to talk here in part two, back at Peak Prosperity, about how I go about decoding where and I think when, this is the most important part, um, about the crises that will be emerging. So there I'm going to be looking at all kinds of things around and about the um well the economic signals i'm looking at the energy signals i'm looking at and a number of other things all right so with that thanks so much for being here bye-bye